0: Well, uh, good evening, history lovers, and welcome to the latest History Ireland Head School. Um, I'm your head school master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland, and I, I know you're all subscribers, so I, I won't labour that point. Um, <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here in the Hall Library in uh, the Athens of the North, uh, which I, I've spent uh, many as a happy day, I have to say. Now, um, th- this head school tonight is is actually a spin-off from two different exhibitions, not just the one uh, that's been launched here tonight, Uh, uh, uh the, uh, the anonymous was a woman, but also the, the prony online uh, exhibition, uh, A Century of Women, and that's, that's uh, the title of this evening's uh, head school. Now, uh, on the panel here, I have uh, on my left here, Margaret Ward, and uh, on my right, Myrtle Hill, both of whom uh, were authors and advisors on the, uh, the um, uh, uh, Century of Women exhibition, along with uh, uh, Lydia Walker. Uh, on my left, uh, we have Baroness May Blood, and I have to say, it's the first time I've had a Baroness on one of my panels. <laughs> uh, now, May, you've you, you retired from the House of Lords, so she's given me a special dispensation this evening to, to address her simply Absolutely. as Okay, so <laughs> we, We've got the formalities out of the way. Uh, and then finally, our token man on the panel. What a uh, nice change. D- D- Donal uh, <laughs> Fallon. Now, Donal actually is a curator of an exhibition in Dublin uh, on censorship. Donal, just tell us a bit about that, because we had a very interesting head school on this issue on, on Tuesday so in National it's Library. called
1: uh, Evil Literature. Uh, I don't think the books are evil, but the Irish state did. We have think of the committee on evil literature, and it looks at books that were banned in twentieth-century Irish history, and an awful lot of them, it seems to me, were written by women, uh, dangerous, dangerous women like Edna O'Brien.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, just to get us started, I just like to go to maybe Margaret and Merton who who put the online exhibition together, just to give us a sketch of what women's life was like, particularly in Belfast, generally in the, in, in the northeast uh, during this time, because. I think one big contrast with the south, for example, is is the fact that there was large-scale industrial employment. But uh, but maybe if you could, uh, between you, just give us a, just a, uh, just to get us started, a kind of sketch of what it was like.
2: We're we talking about the beginning of the twentieth century. Twentieth century, yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's Myrtle talk about the industrial side, if you want, the labour movement, and think about. Uh, I mean, this is Linenopolis, so we are very different in in the north. Um, Belfast is industrial, but then you've also got. The outworkers, women employed in in the home um, at piece rate work. So you've got a lot more employment of women, really badly paid, um, really poor conditions. Women struggling, losing their eyesight, and really, uh, you know, uh, small hovels with very little light. You've got children starting work as half timers by the age of seven if they're not. If they're not kind of in the industrial way of life by then, employers don't want to know them. You've got uh, families living in the little kitchen houses and very much tied to their employers as well, um, not having agency necessarily to do anything. But but I won't go into more detail. But what you also have is a burgeoning middle class. You've had women like Margaret Byers and Isabella Todd at the late 19th century arguing and campaigning for girls' education and then for the education of um, higher education. So you've had women starting to go through Queen's College as it was. You've had Victoria College set up as the first girls' school that gives girls an academic education as opposed to Um, you know, the kind of refinements that a a middle-class girl would have to make her a good wife. So you've got all of that happening. And then you've also got women involved in politics. And what always surprises me in terms of nationalism is how much more involved the few nationalist women there are, how much more integrated they are. So you've had um, Alice Milligan and Ethna Carberry from the 1890s being the editor of... Not one but two papers, the Northern Patriot and then the Shan van Vogt. And they're the only women who are editors of a newspaper. And James Connolly's first writings are in the Shan van Vogt. And they, 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 they produce that until Arthur Griffith starts the United Irishman in Dublin. And then Ireland can't really compete with two. But they are really active, they're very active in, in um, engaging in the commemoration of the 1798. Okay uprising so in 1898 you've got the United Irish women you actually have women organized here before Maud gone organizers in the heron down in Dublin so it's not that there aren't people here and you also have Ulster unionist women who are mainly um, upper class a lot of titled women uh, at that time who who are not um, that politically active in terms of wanting the vote because they feel they have influence amongst the circles that they uh, are in. But Isabella Todd sets the first woman suffrage society in the whole of Ireland in the 1870s. So in, in some senses I think we're ahead, um, although Dublin is always the one that people look to, I mm. don't think necessarily is.
0: Can I just ask a question there because the, the Local Government Act came in in, in uh, 90, sorry, 1898 and um, I'm just reading from the timeline down below this is not based on any ma- massive mm. research on my part uh, but it says that women were able to sit on councils could they vote uh, in local yes. politics yes i think it was 1911 but,
3: uh, but when
2: but that's got the, the vote. county council that's yeah. the, the first tier was 1898 and the, the second tier the count was 1911 so women
0: were al- already voting at, lower at levels. The local of government level. right okay so yeah that's 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 significant well,
2: Could with we certain qualifications. We're certain, right. yeah. yes, in terms of property, but it was 1907 in Britain that that was passed, and uh, one of the arguments was that there hadn't been an active suffrage movement here to press, so it was only in 1911 that we got it, so there was always a time lag between what happened, and partly the Irish Parliamentary Party in Westminster wasn't pushing anything for women either. The women mm. didn't have the,
3: that kind of champions in Westminster... And again, Isabella Todd was very important in all of that. I think all the interconnections are fascinating. Uh, But she belonged, uh, amongst many other things, she was involved in a kind of sanitary reform association. And so really interested in things like temperance, uh, the state of the the city, and all of those things that she felt had an impact on ordinary women's lives. But when we, uh, Linda and Margaret and myself, uh, were putting together a website called uh, A Century of Women, Um, And one of the issues around that that I think is really important uh, and, you know, often gets overlooked. When we were launching the website, everyone was talking about the individual women that were highlighted, uh, you know, women who had done sort of quite remarkable things and so forth, which is fine. But I was really concerned that what I felt was very important was that we looked at the context in which those women operated. Because the whole political, social, economic background, whether there were jobs or not, you know, what kind of political rights there were, all of that was really, really important. And you think about the ups and downs in the linen industry and all the rest of it. So I, I think it's important to see you know, women's own agency, certainly, but very much determined by or fighting against that wider context in which we all live. And again, if we look around here, Um, There's no two of us have the same experience, so we talk about the category women. But differences in age, experience, religion, geography, you know, a mass of things. Uh, And Margaret has already talked uh, about some of the middle class women in the Ulster Women's Unionist Association. Uh, And women did become involved because middle class women had the time and the education very often uh, to help move things along. For a working woman, it was much more difficult, and we know that in Belfast, linen was the big employer of women. And actually, things were much better than Dublin mm. uh, at the beginning of the century because also your man could work in the in the um, shipyard, uh, and his wife have a job uh, in the in the mill. Uh, as Margaret again alluded to, there were issues around you know all those little terrace houses. I did some oral history in the Shankill a uh, year or so ago um the rent uh was kind of dependent on your employer so you know holding on to your job was really important so although you were paid very little um you know it was really important to keep everything was sort of interdependent and i think that's very significant you know, of course you had the half timers as well uh children from the age of 13 going to school um a couple of days a week working in the mill of the rest um, paid like three and sixpence a day but if you didn't uh, go to school, you wouldn't get your pay. So, again, these issues coming together and also leading to illiteracy amongst many kids because they're only spending half their time at school. So, there's lots going on. I'll tell you a couple of wee things I picked up on the mill, and then I'm sure May will have lots more to say, but she wasn't around uh, in those early days where I loved hearing uh, the sort of everyday things. Um, people talk, and I for example. Say about you know you spent nearly all your time in the mill um so women talked about bringing their washing in at the big troughs of hot water they would do their washing in them they would keep their dinner warm in these troughs they talked about um breastfeeding uh and how you know whoever was minding the kids very often the older kids would bring the babies along and you think that was great the women have the opportunity to breastfeed outside the factory but you know Conditions were pretty terrible, and very often those terrible conditions were being passed on uh, to the infants. So there were a lot of issues there. And when you went home, you would have a household with maybe, you know, mother, father, and maybe seven, eight, or more children. And very often, you know, I was hearing tales of them sleeping end to end in the bed or in shifts. You know, when one got up and went to work, the other one went and slept in the bed. And I suppose for me, one of the big issues running throughout, right up to our present day, um, was women's whole reproductive um, system and the choices or, or lack of choices. I loved it um, when I was doing a talk um, and there was a very mixed audience. Uh, and uh, one woman said to me, well, I had, to, or my granny had to go to um, the Catholic friends and ask for their advice. What do you do? You know, the can't have all these children apparently the jump off at the junction um was the main means of uh trying uh to um standardize these things but it didn't work very well um and it's interesting to see how things very gradually uh, shifted and changed and they needed to because you had to pay three and six to visit the doctor and it was five shillings extra then if you needed medicine so there's all of that going on with life very much depending the economy and I'm, I suppose I'm talking about the, the Shanklin and the Falls mainly in this area, um, where the family's economy was dependent on the pawn shop and the grocer giving you tick uh, and on money lenders. Uh, that was a way of making money, and there are some very good stories about that, but I'll leave it there.
0: Donald, can I bring you in uh, just uh, because uh, Myrtle has, has raised the importance of the broader context? Mm. Could you just talk to us about the contrast between Belfast and Belfast? Okay. Because it's already been mentioned.
1: So, uh, Manchester is Cottonopolis. Belfast is linenopolis, and Dublin is no In yeah. Dublin, the lack of industry in early 20th century Dublin is staggering. And if you look at the, the 1911 census, well, well, historians have a great time. Of the 1911 census, you can get right into just the, the, the economics of people's lives, and you look at that. Uh, and uh, another interesting dimension, actually, in terms of women, there's a lot of women missing from the 1911 census. Suffragettes, who said, "Look, if we're invisible in the eyes of the state, we're invisible in your census." There's also some great women that list their religion or occupation uh, as suffragette. But if you look at the 1911 census for Dublin, you notice the largest group of men in the workforce are general laborers. And that means essentially they do whatever work is going, uh, when it's going. They go in the docks on a Monday, they might get a day's work, they might not, they go home with nothing. For women, the equivalent is, is domestic servitude. And what's obvious from that census is there's a real lack of work uh, for women in Dublin. So the trade union movement, really, as far as women are so concerned. there's
0: never any lack of work for women, in my experience with that. Yeah, <laughs> well, paid work
1: outside the home. And, what you see like in, 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 in Belfast, you get the arrival of people like Connolly, uh, Larkin. I mean, Larkinism, what a powerful term. The first time it's used in the press in Ireland, they're not talking about the lockout in Dublin. They're talking about the 1907 strike in Belfast. And it's true, this city, where you get the emergence of things like the Irish Textile Workers' Union, which is like a great forerunner of the Irish Women's Workers' Union, which eventually comes on the scene in Dublin. But radical politics in Dublin develops very, very slowly, especially among women, uh, because of the absence of work in the city. Jacob's Biscuit Factory where some relations of mine work, that was a big employer of women, but that was the big employer of women. And in the absence of work, look what you get in Dublin. Like you have the largest red light district in Europe mm-hmm. in the late 19th century, Monto, which is right beside Amiens Street train station. Uh, some historians estimate there are as many as 1,300 women a day working in the Monto in Dublin. Dublin's a garrison town, that's the only industry that's there really. So yeah, the absence of, of, of employment prospects for women in Dublin, there's this great diverse, there's this great contrast, you might say, between this city where women are unionised, they're brought into politics through Larkin, Connolly, uh, and others, uh, and Dublin where the, the lack of work is the issue of the day.
0: Uh, May, can I bring you in, in here, and just before I do, I just draw your attention to the, that marvellous photograph on the, the, um, the, the brochure here, uh, which is from 1961. Uh, women obviously leave and work, right? Uh, May, I want to just, just talk to us about, you actually worked in a linen mill, right? And I mean, a lot of the references here have been obviously uh, negative, right, rightly so. But I'm just looking at this photograph, right, and it just projects, you know, joy and <laughs> power almost, right. So, you know, does that, yeah, well, I mean d- that, does, that does that ring through to you, that, uh, uh, or is it just because yeah. they're they're yeah. off work?
4: That's perfectly true. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, certainly what you've heard about the poor conditions and, and certainly the wages were practically non-existent. <laughs> uh, mill I worked in, for instance, it was four hundred and fifty workers. We didn't even have the first aid. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a tea break. We didn't have any of those things, <coughs> but. Inside, once you went inside the gate, you were a community within a community, and that community helped each other. There was only one enemy within the gates, and that was the guy in the white coat. We all worked together. I worked in a room of over 100 people, and throughout the mill, if a woman was in difficulties, some of their husbands went and got their unemployment benefit and went to the bookies, and there was no money, we went up and made sure the money was there the next week because we would have said we'd be back up to see you. And so women, there was a real feeling among women that while we couldn't change the system because we thought that was beyond us, we could help each other in our lives. And so that's the way the bill worked for me for many, many years. I was saying earlier to Tommy, I worked in a room of 100 people, 98 women and 2 men. And you know, as women we very often talk about sexual harassment. Why did we harass them? It was the real fun of the day, so it was. But still, with all there was that feeling within the mill, predominantly women. There was that feeling of helping each other. A couple of Bob helping each other. Myrtle was talking there about going to the doctors. I can remember way before the health service. My mother. There was seven of us, and my mother would have taken us up to the dispensary and they were on the the Road, mm. and she hoped the one Shelley. The doctor would say before this, we were all shoved in through the door. Because it just wasn't the money, it wasn't the health service, it wasn't any of those things. Mm -hmm. And certainly in my young day, the mill was where women of my standing went to work. And I worked in the mill for 38 years. And I was saying earlier, I had never met a woman yet that worked in the mill, and I mean on the floor of the mill. I never met one that would tell you it wasn't the best experience of her life. We love working in the mill, and that photograph actually is a real reflection of coming out, all telling each other what he done, what he didn't do, <laughs> what he think he said. I can remember, for instance, uh, we had to have a medical up till we were 18. That was the law. We had to have a medical once a year. And so they used to march us into this old man who could hardly stand. And all he was there, he was really there for a good group. But we didn't
5: know that. <laughs> and we're just sitting down the
4: road, smiling, and telling each other, what you see what he done with me? Oh, he did that to me too. <laughs> but you never would have dragged a report. That's the way life was, and you just got on with
0: life. But may, I, I mean, this this is a, 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 this era has passed now in the sense that you don't get single-sex workplaces. I, mean, I I worked at Ringsend Power Station, which is all male, right? Yeah. And there's a particular atmosphere, and, and, and I'm not talking negatively, I mean, there's a particular thing about, uh, you know, and women together. Right? Yeah. So I mean, was there a particular atmosphere because of women in your in your view?
4: Yes, I think there was a strength because we we lent on okay. each other. Right. When, when outside the outside the mill gate, the, the power was all in the hands of men. Inside the mill gate, the power was in the hands of women. Well, so it seems. From what you're saying. That is, actually, that is actually the way. I suppose that's the way we enjoyed our life for the want of a be better word. And coming out of the gate at night, it was great. We were talking about going home, getting washed. Myrtle was referring earlier to breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I really remember is most of the women in the mill I lived, worked in lived locally. So if some woman just had a baby. only stayed out for about a week after mm-hmm. the birth. Mm-hmm. And we used to, she used to disappear down the back stairs, round in the house, breastfeed the child in the back, and we covered for her. Now the interesting thing about that was when you worked in the mill, you were covered in yeah. dust. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, real dust. And when she put the child on her shoulder to burp, the child was breathing in that dust also. Mm-hmm. So there was all that actual mm-hmm. stuff going on. We didn't realise. We were we were uh, entering her health. We didn't realise that. But they were things she supported each other. The boss came looking for a particular woman said, oh, she's in the toilet, women's trouble. That took them away. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to know. He didn't want to know. And so that was interesting because, again, that was women helping women. Mm-hmm. But we were always told, you know, the uh, big Belfast
2: and the nuns would say, you know, if you don't pass your exams, you know, you'll end up like the millies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a millie, but, but it was because of this, what they didn't like was the self-confidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and
4: the cheek. Right.
2: That's right. That's <laughs> what they didn't <laughs> want us <dress laughs> to be. That's right. That's what, yeah.
4: what yeah. May's described. And I mean, I left school with well, virtually no education. I left school at the age of 14. I got my education through trade union movement. Mm-hmm. So I did. And even though I joined one of the most male-dominated unions... And it was a hard
3: struggle to have a woman's voice. We got there eventually. But it's all relative, too, isn't it? I mean, if you worked as a domestic servant or out on a farm or so, you were isolated. Uh, Mm. And, you know, you actually got paid more in the (laughs) mill, even though it was bad. Plus, uh, although the hours were long, you knew when stopped. Uh, I think, you know, so there's the whole big question about whether. It was better or worse, so I think that's important. But the yeah. camarades always talked about. Yeah. It. it
1: should yeah. also be said, Tommy. People are always generally happier leaving work than going into it. You know, I wonder <laughs> <laughs> was, there, was there an equivalent image taken at seven in the morning when they were going in to the workforce, and were they as happy then?
0: Just before we move on to the next question, I just to—I forgot to, to explain the format of this uh, to the audience. Uh, these, the panel are working hard up here, right? But you were—you were expected to do a bit of work as well, uh, and. Uh, Ask a few questions and make your own intervention. So if anybody has a question at any stage, just put your hand up and we'll, we'll bring you straight into the discussion. We don't just leave it to the end, right? So you know, formulate a question. Yeah. Uh, now, there, is, there is there a radio mic here, Jason? Yeah. The, by the way, this is all being recorded, so, so keep it clean. <laughs> <laughs> that goes for it's you in particular, right? <laughs> when I was a child, my
5: mother
0: spoke. Just, just wait till you get the mic, because uh, we, we won't... Is it? With the recording. Yeah, just here at the front here. Yeah.
2: When I was young, my mother spoke frequently about the ordinary five-eighths, but I don't quite
4: understand what that meant. Do any of the family
0: know? Oh, mm, here's a good one.
3: The five-eighths? In
4: what, what context? It was in the context, I think, of voting and, and sort of having a voice. I've heard the expression, but. I never really
0: understood what it meant, either. <laughs> 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 uh, just <laughs> d- d- pass the microphone over here. Um, so, d- I, th- I
4: think means somebody who works five, no, use use the the mic, five g- days a week.
0: No, did you use the mic? Just, j- just ah. repeat that, could you, on the mic, please, so we can uh, d- d- the recording will hear it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it means
4: uh, someone who works five days a week, eight hours a day. Oh, right. So right so that's right. it. Ah. yeah. yeah. describe himself as at five, eight hours
5: yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, That would happen later. Lynn, yeah.
5: Yes. Um, you know, when the mills, as you worked in them, when they became unionized? You know, did everybody join? What differences did it make? I, I myself used to work in Mackey's and West Hulfast, and it was quite a job to persuade, this would have been in the 80s, it's quite a job to persuade some people to join the union and to be taken seriously as well. So I'd just like to ask you, you know, did it make, did it transform your lives in terms of rights uh, after maybe a long time?
4: With I- but, with certainly uh, when I joined the trade union, and I have to say this, when I went into work on a Monday morning, I left school on Friday, starting in the middle of the Monday morning, with a strict instruction from my father that I was not to join the trade union. My father's believed trade union for men. I wasn't half an hour in the mill until I was approached to join. <laughs> because everybody in the mill I worked in was in the union. And a good lot of that was down to Sadie Patterson and Betty Sinkler and people like that. You kept push, 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 push. And convinced women that there was power if you could get the crowd together. And I used to say to my boss very often when I was up negotiating over everything, you're better talking to me than 400. You know, <coughs> And there was that strength. But the trade union, while it, 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 it done what it could, we, we increased the wages, but it took a long, long time. And you know, it was 38 years in the middle. And my wages increased. When I started the mill my wages was £1.16 shillings a week for a 48 hour week and when the mill closed in 1990 for a 38 hour week my wages were £90. So it didn't really advance that much. What I preferred the trade union to do, because we are affecting employers about wages now, we put in health, we got health things on the floor, we got time We got time out for girls to go to uh, maternity things things like that that was non-existent, mm-hmm. they were got through the trade union because the trade union pushed it. And in all my years as a, as a trade union representative, I only ever had to go on strike once. It's, it's a, a very it's long, long history. It's a bit imagine. like Connolly, isn't it? Yes. I mean, when, when yeah. in
2: 1911, yeah. when they go on strike, <laughs> they don't get higher wages, but what they do is they fight against the rules Absolutely. and the conditions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I used to sell a, a paper in, ni- in the 1970s outside Ross's Mill. And the oh, North well. Um, and was that unionised? Because it yes. was a terrible industrial accident yes. when we were, yeah. and somebody, I think, lost an arm or something yes. like that. So I was wondering about conditions. There. My brother lost his fingers in Ross.
3: Mm. Yes. Um, um, Mary Galway did a, a lot that's in, right. in terms of that half-timer thing. That's right. You know. So there were pioneers from well, early on, but it, it, it easy was a challenge.
4: It wasn't easy because the mill owners simply thought they owned you, never been the mill. And I can remember repeatedly going to an employer for, for something, maybe a penny an hour. And he said, you have a job, but what do you want? That was the whole attitude, particularly the women. Mm-hmm. Particularly the men had far more than we had. I mean, we had two men, as I say, in our room. We pushed a truck up and down the room. But they had practically double my wages. They never produced anything. the mm-hmm. so women produced all the work. And I can tell you there was some crazy fights over that.
0: <laughs> now, can I just move the focus back to, to middle class women Mark? Because uh, you, you were saying that uh, middle class women would have the time and the opportunity you know, to engage politically. Now, th- did that mean in practice in this part of the world they would tend to be unionist?
3: Um, well, I suppose it sort of the gener- reflects the general population. Right. Not necessarily, but more likely, I think, that they would have been. And the Ulster Unionist Women's Association formed in 1911, at the you know just as home rule was becoming really critical. That was headed up by the aristocracy and a lot of middle class women involved. But then they, um, you know, went out uh, and lobbied amongst the you know in the street, the back streets of Belfast and, and further afield. Uh, and the Ulster Unionist Women's Association, um, uh, Diane Urquhart says it was the biggest women's organisation in mm. Ireland uh, at the time, and those women were very active uh, in, in pushing forward and promoting their own political ideas. Why don't, it, Sorry, sorry to to cut cross.
0: Why did they oppose votes for women then?
3: I'm Not re- all of them I'm, I'm,
0: did. I'm, no, but I'm, again, I'm <laughs> reading from the panel down below, right? It was saying that uh, there was some discussion in, in the Ulster Unionist Council, mm-hmm. this is pre-1914, <laughs> yep. for votes for women. That Carson was against it. Yes. But he also. But his, this is first, Jason. Jason, it says that the Ulster Women's Unionist Council also mm. opposed it. Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, you. it's uh,
3: look at all, okay. all aspects of Irish history.
0: Hey, is somebody want to answer, answer? No, that's not If you could use the mic, sorry, Lynne, you're, you're the custodian. Let me just pass it back. Sorry. Thank you.
2: Unionist Council were told not to discuss the issue mm-hmm. o- of suffrage um, within the within the organisation. Even mm-hmm. though you know you had a few champions um, of suffrage, the 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 women who who were at the you know the marchionesses and all of those
3: were not in favour of suffrage. And, and yes. you know, but I think it's the same as within nationalism at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah, and indeed one could argue. Uh, Currently, there was another issue—the biggest issue of constitutional history. Let's get that settled first, they yeah. said. Yeah. You know, yeah. before yeah. we do anything else. <laughs>
1: there was no uh, like the Irish parliamentary party line on suffrage for women was pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, Dylan, the, the vice yes. leader of the party, said it would. It would Challenge Western civilization and the headship of this family by man as laid down by God. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that great cartoon on the front of the Irish Citizen of, of the feminist newspaper in Dublin of John Redmond standing on the body of a, of a suffragette. You know, the danger of reading history backwards and saying the Nationalists were always progressive and the Unionists reactionary. The Parliamentary Party line on Votes for Women was incredibly reactionary.
0: Yeah. Well, we can speculate that the women were waiting in the long grass for the Irish Parliamentary Party in 1918. In any case, mm. um, when, when they got when they mm. got the vote, but I mean, that, that's that's a matter of uh, uh, speculation. But it, it, again, but does it not? That does not not imply then that the the um, the, the Ulster Women's Unionist mm. Association lacked autonomy, like that they were. That, that, I mean, just because they're asked to do something doesn't mean they have to do it. Or, <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Well,
2: you know they. They, are, they were things different, you know. So, that, for example, when you have the Ulster Covenant against Home Rule and some men, you know, sign in blood, etc., in City Hall, you have the, the table there that it was signed. Well, women couldn't sign it because they weren't citizens. So, you have the Women's Declaration. In fact, more women sign the Declaration than men sign the Covenant. And women are, you know, extremely exercised and,
3: and active. On that issue, but they are not active on the issue of suffrage at that time. Indeed, the the nationalist women uh, did make that point that they thought uh, unionist women were just giving in to their men. Yeah. But you could turn that the other way as well, you know. So there were—it's that whole thing where there always are different priorities and different things are important at different times. Well, let's face it. I mean,
4: let's call it best for name. Men didn't believe women would know what to do if they got the vote. And they wouldn't have walked to to change the system. I can remember when we set the Women's Coalition up. I remember a leading politician in Northern Ireland telling me that a women went into politics at the end of family life, as they knew it. And that no. is and very thank much goodness same. for that. That's very <laughs> <much> <laughs> but that's very much the <laughs> criteria. I you know, I knew a lot of women who would have been in the Ulster Unionist Association. Yeah. But they were all fairly well-to-do. There were men at good jobs, maybe we car at the door. And they were welcomed into the, the association can you imagine me going to join it, mm.
0: <laughs> it <be> <laughs> that's exactly what i was imagining may actually yeah. when yeah. <laughs> we just got back yeah. <laughs> when margaret mentioned it, they were told not to do something right um that time,
1: just, uh, I'll go back to the parliamentary party and the nationalist side of things uh, there were some voices in the parliamentary party in fairness to them, some men that did believe in, in the right mm. of women to vote uh, and one of them was this great guy called william field uh, in dublin in the saint patrick's division and uh, he was a, a firm believer in the right of women to vote. And when he lost his seat in 1918, he lost it to a woman. Countess Markovic won that seat. So.
2: <laughs> <But> also, <laughs> the men, we had Joe Devlin here. So that, uh, you know, Belfast yeah. is different. And Joe Devlin yeah. was a fantastic champion Absolutely. for linen workers. Mm-hmm. And so in 1918, they weren't supporting Sinn Féin. They were supporting yeah, the Joe Devlin. Um, yeah. You know, he remained, and he was a supporter of women. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I find it interesting, although. Uh, you know, he's against the suffrage movement because of party politics. But when that issue was solved, he sets up, you know, mo- uh, children, mothers' homes and women's homes and mm. various things. And he's very mm-hmm. friendly with women like Hannah Shee Now,
0: Now, I want to go on to uh, the, the First World War, right, women's involvement, involvement in that, uh, and in particular the role played by Lady Londonderry.
3: Oh, yeah. L- Lady Londonderry is quite interesting. Um, uh, of course, it was a fascinating period of change in different directions for many people, especially women, I think. Uh, but uh, Lady Londonderry set up the Women's Legion uh, in 1915 uh, with the aim of uh, replacing, um, training women to replace men uh, who had gone off to the front. And everything from, um, you know, gardening, driving, uh, horticulture, balls all sorts of things, and she was quite interesting because she had this uh, thing, you know. What she didn't. She was very conscious, uh, and you would be. If you saw the cartoons of the suffragists and, and so forth. Very conscious that she didn't uh, want great big hulking. Women. She <laughs> you didn't know? want women to be Amazons. huh. She didn't want <laughs> them to be Amazons, um, and you know th- these were all temporary things, but it did give a lot of opportunities to a lot of women, particularly things like nursing. Whether it was professional nursing, um, Dr. Elizabeth Bell, for example, who had, she wasn't a nurse, uh, she had been a, a, a suffragist who had um, tended women on hunger strike and so forth during the, the suffrage crisis of 1914. But she went off to Malta uh, to serve as an army doctor. You had other women, thinking here of Margaret McCouvery, who lived just off the uh, Ormer Road, another uh, important um, suffragist who uh, was a pacifist uh, and who, very interestingly, I thought, joined the Women's Peace Crusade, uh, formed in Glasgow, in the Glasgow slums during a a rent strike, Uh, and she joined that and tried uh, completely and utterly failed uh, but tried uh, to hold a, a peace conference uh, here in Ireland but you had women going out and doing all kinds of work I mean we hear about the ones in Mackeys um, so jobs were lost and new jobs found uh, and what have you but there were also other changes which I think are important before the war which helps explain why things changed, seemed to change so much afterwards you the typewriter. Uh, coming in at the end of the 19th century. You had jobs in the civil service and the post office, you know, you, you had the, the big sewing machines coming in. You had middle class women getting jobs, for example, as, uh, when I was up in an, uh, a residential home. Uh, I hate to say old people now, you know. yes, that's uh, us. But, uh, but people yeah, yeah. were telling me there was a whole group of these women who used to work in Anderson Macaulay's or yes. Robson Cleavers, and they were telling me about the different departments and so forth. So you have a bigger range of job for lower middle class, middle class women uh, and so forth. So things are changing spurred along by the war. Can um, you say a little bit more about Lady, L- Lady London? Drink. She was yeah. one of the few who was a suffragist. Yes. I mean,
2: it wasn't a suffragette, but she did support the yeah. for women movement. But she was also very elegant. If You've seen pictures of her and Mount Stewart and all of that. So, you know, she wants you know, the, the, the kind of uniform and everything. Mm-hmm. She was very concerned about that. But the, the, the land girls and women in the land army, all of that stems from her inspiration. Mm-hmm. And eventually women joined the army as a unit. Mm-hmm. But it is through her. So, um, in, fa- in fact, it was, she was much more influential in Britain, than she was over here because we didn't have conscription in Ireland uh, and they did have it in Britain. So women were much more important in the war effort across the water Mm. in terms of taking over jobs once men had been conscripted into the army. Mm. Um, So we didn't have quite so much. Really visibly
3: as well, you've got that great change in fashion, you know, Uh, Mm. and women are wearing trousers and (laughs) more kind of uh, easy clothes and so forth if you like. So I think the changes socially were absolutely tremendous. And in yeah. the south,
1: one effect is yeah. women are in the workforce. So yeah, we get sure. the munitions yeah. factories yeah. Uh, in Dublin. Finally, women are working. Mm-hmm. But the war creates a real dilemma for the the suffrage movement on the mm-hmm. island of Ireland. In Britain, the suffragette movement overwhelmingly not not entirely but overwhelmingly rallies behind right. the war effort, and the left all over Europe does it. You know and. People that said, oh, when a war comes, we won't fight at the working-class movement or rally against the war. What did they do? They all fell in behind their respective national war efforts. Mm-hmm. And then in Dublin, the front page of the Irish citizen says, damn your war, mm-hmm. You know, we want the vote. Mm-hmm. So the, the suffrage movement in Ireland, the problem it has is some of them regard themselves as British suffragettes, some of them regard themselves as Irish suffragettes, mm-hmm. and how they respond to the war is, is, is very, very different.
2: Yeah. But also the war gives uh, women who want to support the war effort um, A space like Lady Aberdeen, who's the wife of the Lord Lieutenant and she sets up she's a suffragist as well, she sets up a women's emergency committee and that's north and south. So they start off women's police patrols in Dublin, although they say in the minutes they couldn't get anyone from Belfast to agree to be a part of the patrols. What it was was trying to protect women from soldiers because there were so many more soldiers on the streets and it was all a thing about morality. But that's the start of women joining the police service after the war. It starts from that that Women's Emergency Committee and and looking at um, conditions... were women going to be cheap labour in factories or were they going to be given uh, a a wage similar to men? And so Sylvia Pankhurst, for example, who's anti-war and a socialist, comes over to Belfast in 1915 and she's trying to campaign to increase the wages given to women who were working in the war industries. So there's a lot of that work going on as well. Women who were in the suffrage movement trying to support women
3: who were working in the war industries. Of course, you'd be very cynical about, uh, well, about most things, but you could be very cynical about police women as well. Um, you know, there was the notion that um, the main um, aim was to prevent uh, women who were getting a separation alliance mm-hmm. from dallying with other men, you know, so, and to, <laughs> to, to, to prevent any kind of sexual uh, misdemeanours and so mm-hmm. forth. This Just Is the,
2: the first time women are policed? Because because they get getting a state yep. allowance when their men are in the army, mm. the separation allowance. Women. It's the first time um, they now have licensing hours in the pubs, and there are times when women aren't allowed in mm-hmm. because they expect women to just drink their their allowance. You know, <laughs> and right. there's all these tales in the paper and looking at whether women are claiming more than one allowance, whether they've got claiming for two husbands and mm. things like that. And they just dic- they just assume women are all on the mate. <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think that my great-granny <laughs>
1: great had a good World War I because uh, her husband, Thomas Howard, he joined the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, so she got the separation allowance. But he worked for Guinness, uh, and Guinness paid 50% of your wage while you fought in the war, and if you came back again, your job was still there. So she probably bed him down the docks and said, I don't know what this war is about, but you're off to fighting it, uh, and I'll see you when it's over. But the first time in her life, she had money in her pocket.
0: Um, now, I just want to move on to something else, right? Um, Countess Markovic was mentioned here. The repeal of the Eighth Amendment was mentioned here. I want to link those two. We had a little rather provocative piece in History Ireland a while back by Mary Kenny, right? And the headline was: Would Countess Markovic have voted for repeal of the Eighth? I think she was making the point that Countess Markovic had become, uh, you know, a, a, an iconic feminist, uh, um, um, you know, person, but you know, for, for very good reasons. But the fact of the matter is, all these people were devout Catholics, Donald, right? I mean. Uh, in other words, there is there is a danger of projecting backwards, a kind of some left wing agenda uh, or socially liberal agenda onto people who didn't hold those views at all.
1: People can only be judged in the context of their own time. You know, and uh, Larkin, for me, I mean the great left icon of the period is is, is Jim Larkin. Jim Larkin refuses to share a platform on one occasion with another trade unionist in America on the basis that that man was divorced. You know Rosie Hackett, who's this great <laughs> firebrand figure in the Irish Women's Workers Union, is later involved in the in the in the in the Legion of Mary. And I don't agree with the, the Kev, Kevin O'Higgins had this this great line in the 1920s. So Higgins was a veteran of the revolution who went on to become the the Minister for Justice in Dublin. And he said the Irish are the most conservative people that ever had a successful revolution. <laughs> I don't entirely agree with O'Higgins on that. But I mean, the, if you look at the, the social attitudes of the day, some of the the, the witness statements, a brilliant resource. I mean, we have thousands of primary source. Uh, you know, recollections from people that were there in the Irish Revolution from every corner of the island, from Bulmer Hobson in Belfast to teenagers in Cork or in the Fianna, And they do talk a lot, you know, on occasion, with women that were in them on the Mall, for example, about soldiers and women on Grafton Street, they talk about women of Low morals, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, you have to judge these people in the in the in the context of their time. When Markovic gives her speech against the Treaty in the DAW, she talks about English immoralities like divorce, you know, arriving arriving into this country. So if there were a more socially conservative people that we might want to admit today, there were more socially conservative times. And that's the real danger, that referendum on both sides. were posters in Dublin of Patrick Pierce, you know. Remember Pierce, vote to save the Eighth Amendment. Pierce is dead of the century. You know, we can't reflect. We feel in the past,
0: but no, but see, they, but it seems to me though that, that you, you could safely, if you don't want to use that term, be a devout Catholic and a radical feminist and while, while the whole country was under the control of the British because mm. you it was like the Cold War, mm. you had a, a kind of mm. a, an equilibrium between Protestant state and a, 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 the vast bulk of the population were Catholic. Yes. the problem though was when, when the, the, the free state was set up. It's, it's, it's uh, a homogenous Catholic society. Mm, mm. And then a lot of these women who had been radical in their day find themselves in this backward, mm. regressive state. And we're, we're only getting out of the, the shadow of that in the last number of years. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Now, so th- what I'm leaning on to is, did you have the same retrenchment in this part of the world? Because there, was, there certainly was a retrenchment all over Europe, a swing after the, the Revolutionary period, immediately after the First World War you have a, a political swing in a conservative, right-wing direction, authoritarian regimes are established, and I'm assuming that you had a parallel, uh, you know, backward steps in terms of rights for women and so forth. Now, what is the situation then in, 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 in this part of the world, in I that think regard?
2: I think one of the things to really remember is how difficult it was after partition for people who had been politically active as nationalists um, Maurice Hayes said when he was launching the um, Dictionary of Ulster Biography that you had the, the greatest exodus um, from the six counties mm. since the flight of the earls when people left Ireland en masse. So what you had was a, a, a potential middle-class leadership that left. And I'm thinking of the uh, first cohort of Cumanamana in, in 1914. A lot of them were teachers in St Mary's and that. Um, they left. People like um, Roisin Walsh um, first of all went home to Tyrone, um, then couldn't get a job because she wouldn't um, take the Oath of Allegiance. Nobody could work in a public sector job if they, unless they took the Oath of Allegiance to the British Crown. So that took out a lot of nationalists who couldn't get work. She moved down to Dublin, so did the rest of her family. Agnes um Ryan, who married Dennis McCulloch, their their business was destroyed in the North with the Belfast boycott. He had a a music business in Queen Street. Um, So they moved down. From the trade union movement, Marie Johnson, who was married to Thomas Mm. Johnson, they moved down. Ellen Gordon, who worked with Connolly Mm. uh, as as a mill organiser, uh, lived in East Belfast. She and her husband left. Loads of the women in different areas. Lillian Mecher, who was Mm. a, a suffragette who... Uh, Tries to blow up Lisbon Cathedral, she left and ended up in Dublin. Um, She wasn't a nationalist, uh, but she wasn't somebody who was comfortable living here. So a lot of the women you might have seen that would have um, organised something just weren't here. And I think life was so difficult. Women who were in Kamanaman, women like Winifred Carney, arrested in 1922, her health suffered a lot of the Mm Kamanaman women. Health was very, very poor. When you look at the witness statements, mm-hmm. mm. you know later on they just—they they just aren't active. They—they—they're they're, they're living on the poverty line. Mm. Um, you know they, they're having breakdowns. Um, they're just not in a position to organise anything. It's a really desperate time, I would say. Mm. What you do have is some women standing for election in terms of unionists, mm. but you have a
3: whole nationalist just rejection. Hmm. Here, well, they in right. yeah, yeah. well, well, the What
0: on the, the union side? Uh, what,
3: uh, well, what we're talking about here also for those who did remain, and I agree with you yes. absolutely that uh, many of the the brightest, and best, and forward, most forward-looking left the country altogether. immigration was, you know, at its highest. Um, but the power of the church, which was then tied after Deville and all the rest, of it, totally tied to your loyalty to the state. Uh, and I think, you know, it's certainly the kind of um, uh, oral histories and things that I've been reading, that was absolutely it, you know. Uh, the, the parish priest had such power uh, over people. And up here in the north, it's something As somebody who grew up as a, as a prod in, in, uh, just outside Belfast. I remember being at an international conference and everybody, and I, I was to talk about something about religion, and I, it was the first time I'd really thought about it. Um, that everybody knew, this was the 1980s, and everybody knew about the Catholic Church and its oppressive um, uh, influence over women in Ireland. But I have to say, um, you know, uh, the Evangelical Church had exactly the same kind of hold uh, over women and family life. The Women's Institute would have nothing to do with contraception and all the rest of it. First Mary Stokes Clinic had opened, had to close again very quickly, and even the Brook Clinic in more modern times you know so all of that was going on and i remember saying you prophet you know uh that if it's written into the law you can change the law attitudes are much harder to change Mm. and we can see that that's happened and so we are lagging behind but there are so many different layers in that yeah.
0: Well, Merton, you, I, I picked out, you see, you've ruined my line here now, because I up the wall, I saw Mary Stokes Clinic, open in 1936, I'm thinking, oh, was this, this, this uh, open, you know, progressive attitude up here, and now you're telling me it was shut down immediately. <laughs> well, not, not quite
3: immediately. Well, it, it lasted for a while. But um, there's this wonderful woman that we need to do more work on, Dr. Olive Anderson, uh, who keeps appearing every now and again, and I have a friend, a, a much older friend, who was a midwife, who remembers this woman very well, who um, was uh, involved and concerned uh, about the whole issue of contraception and multiple births and, and so forth. Uh, and she set up a clinic in 1940, uh, I think, which by 1951, dates are hard to pin down, um, uh, became a, it was a contraceptive clinic that was part of the, what was, or what became the Royal Hospital. So there were individuals working, but even my friend who's in her 80s now um, talks about the opposition that there was to that and how there were all sorts of ways of getting around it, what you call this clinic, and you know what we people were coming for and all the rest of it. As I say, my daughter, um, I remember saying, you have to go and get some contraceptive advice, and because it was me, she went to the Brook Clinic. And she said to me, and this is, what, maybe 20-odd years ago, she said to me, I was going there with your blessing, you know. She said, there were all these big red-faced farmers shouting murderess at me. What if you were a wee girl from the country coming in and saying that, you know? Hmm. So that history hmm. has gone on, and, you know, look where we are now still. But, that, but, that, but does
0: that suggest, then, that this, you know, uh, retrenchment was north and south? You know, what, what we think of as, as Catholic Ireland, right, that hmm. the same thing was happening on the other side of the house.
3: Well, I think it's really hard to do these general sweeps mm. because there are always individuals and groups of people going against the grain mm. and so forth. But in general terms, I think that's true. But I think we have the Carnival of Reaction North and South that Connolly prophesies.
2: Yes, you know, yes. Because what you have is a six-county state that, that comes it into itself. You have a 26-county one that mm-hmm. is overwhelmingly Catholic and isn't mediated mm-hmm. by the kind of voice that you would have had in a 32-county mm-hmm. session. So,
0: I me mean, in your day, like, I mean, say, in the 50s, what was the situation? in terms of family planning and so on. And, and there wasn't such sat- a thing. Okay, <laughs> so... <and laughs> abortions
4: were back to speak, mm-hmm. and I can remember them vividly. Mm-hmm. I remember okay. standing outside a house where we were told the woman had fell down the stairs. Right. Mm-hmm. That was very common. So it was common? It was common. Right, if, and right. People who got themselves in that kind of difficulty normally went to see their mother or... The woman up the street mm-hmm. and the next thing it was all over. And if, if you're if a I had a friend went full term, she was sent away the night. An yes. And the baby was immediately adopted. End of story. There's no yeah. such a thing as clinics. And I was recently involved in the Murray Stokes here. Mm-hmm. No such a thing. I can remember going to meetings recently mm-hmm. and being bombarded by people shouting at me. Yeah. I didn't know where I was because there was eight floors in the building. Mm-hmm. Right. But mm-hmm. yeah.
3: you weren't allowed to go in. And that's still very prevalent.
4: So, this
0: is something that unites us, North and South, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's yeah. yeah. Well, and the so power of the Catholic
3: Church, well, in fact, all churches, the power of the churches has, has decreased now. Um, and I, I think that has made such a difference uh, in um, the Republic. Yeah. I think it's different things up here. Um, and it's this, this small area that is just totally, its politics are totally dominated mm. by constitutional issues, um, which is disgraceful. You it's it,
1: it's interesting that the sense of betrayal at the state that emerges in the south is strongest felt, I think, by women, mm-hmm. and you see that in the refusal of a lot of women, people like Elizabeth O'Farrell, Winnie Carney, and others, mm-hmm. to engage with things like the pension process, the Bureau of Military mm-hmm. History. They don't regard the state that emerges as the state they fought for. And the quote I love, Helena Maloney, she just puts it so beautifully. Helena Maloney is. Don
0: is, is that uh, sorry, Don is that true though? I mean, I'm going back to this point that they were all devout Catholics. What did they mm, What did they expect?
1: Well. You the only quote that I love, she says, We saw a vision of Ireland pure, happy, and free. We didn't achieve this, but we saw it. And overwhelmingly, the men, you look at people like Frank Aiken, Sean Lamass, De Valera, you know, the people that reject the treaty in 22, within four years, they found the feet of All and they're willing to go into the, into the doll and call the Oak what was, it, what was the term that Valeria used? The meaningless formula. Course, Whereas the yeah. women, people like Elizabeth O'Farrell and, and um, Mara Comerford and others, they remained very much political dissidents in the new state right up to the time of their. And right a lot of, the of them has
2: been excommunicated. I mean, Republicans mm. have been excommunicated mm. by the bishops, um, and although many of them were reconciled, there were a lot that just weren't, never mm. were, or a Comerford and people like that.
0: Mm. I'm just looking around the time here, guys. Uh, this is like a sing-song. Everybody wants to get in at the end, right? So I'm just giving you a, a, a five or ten minute warning if you want to make a, a point or ask a question. Yeah, who has the microphone, by the way? Oh, okay, that's great. You have you use the mic there. Uh, yeah.
2: I just wanted to come back, uh, come back uh, to Merkel on the point uh, talking about
4: um, it being the constitutional issue only in which our, our politics have dominated. And I would actually argue
3: that... It would be hard to find a party in the south now that would be in
5: charge of government and be in government that would follow a church teaching. Mm-hmm. But we have a party here as the leading party in government who once pointed their finger south and talked about the rule of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And I have been in meetings where they have told women that it's a fundamental Christian belief that actually makes them veto
3: same-sex marriage and abortion rights. I don't think it's so quite as strong now. It's still there, and there are fundamentals, of course, everywhere are fundamentalists. But, you know, um, I, 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 I agree with you.
1: What government? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: just thing. before we finish, can I just move on to the... the, the Post-Second World War, I'm 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 mindful that we're supposed to be covering a century here, guys. Uh, we we've, we've got about <laughs> ten years covered. Uh, this always happens <laughs> at high school. You know. There will be more. No, what, the influence of free um, third-level education post-Second World War. I mean, what did that do for women?
3: Well, I, I think as it did for everybody, but I think women particularly benefited uh, from the opportunity to go in. And again, this was something that was started by Isabella, Todd, and Margaret Byers way back at the beginning. Uh, and it was that educational shift that enabled and encouraged women to go into politics all the way through and we see that happening in the 1960s. I was looking at the dairy housing situation in the civil rights movement uh, just a a couple of weeks ago and what you see there are um, and it's you know you you get things happening like working class women uh, really protesting about their housing situations. That's when the middle class um, in that case, the McCluskey's, come in educated, uh, university educated, that they know how to get to the media, to spread the word, to go beyond the local, and so forth. And of course, the best example, I suppose, of all is, uh, uh, is Bernadette Devlin, um, who comes out of the university system uh, and engages with a m- much wider political process. May, have you yeah, comment on, I, on I, this?
4: I, I think the mistake is made and it's made in almost every walk of life, if you haven't a university education, you really don't know nothing, and we'll tell you what to do. Uh, yeah. I think and that's, that's very, very true. That's very yeah. much, even today, that's yeah. prevalent today in education. I mean, if you take the like of Joyce McCartan, who done tremendous work in the 90s, now, Joyce McCartan would be virtually her out of history, and yet she made such a change. Mm-hmm. I think of Kate Kelly, Catherine, People who really went on the streets to change these issues, and even though they knew they were they were putting themselves in a good deal of danger, Mm -hmm. they nonetheless took those, and those things are all slowly coming to fruition now. But I think you know we've got to get away from the idea that that if you don't have a university education, you really you really don't really know what you're talking about. Hmm. I mean, I've met people who have yet a university so I still don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 a but I think the point is I mean, I work, as most people know, I work in the shackle and the falls and places like I work with kids and we're trying to give them a the better future. Mm-hmm. Now, do you pile all this stuff on, by the way, abortion, same sex marriage, that all? What I want kids to make those decisions for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was saying to Bronagh earlier, I'm involved in a project here in Northern Ireland called uh, Politics in Action. It's about six forums and different schools coming together. And they're actually asking pertinent questions, which is great. And that's what we have to get to. Because we never change the north if we just say, well, one day it will change. It's got to change.
3: Especially now, I think, May, when it's sort of... The idea is that everybody should go to university, uh, which, you know... Uh, is ridiculous because there'll not be a job at the end of it. And I'm sorry for my university colleagues here, here. Um, there'll not be a suspicious. job at the end of it. And you know, you would be much better getting your education, you know, from from the ground up and so forth. Um, but I think that particular generation did did produce some uh, some leaders in some ways. But that's not uh, to. But that was also free education yes. with
2: grants, which is. Completely
4: Different now, you've got people coming out with huge debts, and you wouldn't
2: encourage people unless they had a particular. But the system
4: encourages them, yes, yes, Yes. the system insists on that.
2: Mm. But what I think has been so important here, and people like Broner and you would would know more than, and and Lynn, is the peace money and women and and community education Mm, and women's groups and all the support that's happened at the grassroots since the very beginning of the peace process, and that kind of education. Mm. But that's the sad
4: sad thing about Brexit. People Mm. forget that. I mean, Mm. as we were saying here in the north, Eaton Bread soon forgot. You're quite right. In the early days of the peace money, when we put it into groups, we seen change coming. Mm-hmm. We seen there was a possibility here that we might make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, where do we go now? Mm-hmm. You know, and there is really good working on on the ground, but it's how you encourage that. And you know, as I was saying earlier. I mean, one of my heroes, and these two ladies haven't mentioned her in annoyed. Mm-hmm. One of my heroes was Barbara Castles. Mm-hmm. 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 And when I went into the House of Lords, I met Barbara Castles. He thought I'd met God <laughs> <laughs> because I watched this woman fight the whole equal pay thing right okay, yeah, yeah, through yeah, and it cost her a lot, but she fought it through. And I met people like Brenda Dean, one of the first women ever had head up a British trade union. So there's good work going on there, you know. We're not necessarily stuck in the past. I think the women's movement is beginning to, to show, and as you heard, the the uh, Lord Merchant night coffee with the different things that's happening, which is good. The women's centres all over Ireland, North and it's right.
5: mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Experience, it's a very emotionally intense experience, you know, and it is a fundamental change at a grassroots level, which you don't see happening. Um, I can't remember the name of the peace building academic who um, talked about piecemeal engineering, but that was what we were doing. So I decided. Really, know how to talk to these people. You see, that's a fundamental skill you never lose. And the fundamental flaw I think that there is is that you seem to represent university education as something that comes out from an 18 year old to a 21 year old. I've been in education now for 40 years youth worker, teacher, lecturer, community facilitator. And that is what education is. I believe the peace process is about educating people, it's about changing. Changing uh, attitudes and building a positive future. See, so uh, I, I'm not mocking what you're saying on head at all, but I'm just making the point that in peace studies uh, and in peace building, we have this view called the paradigm shift, which is quite literally thinking outside the box. And that, in my view, is what um, uh, things like the women's groups and the fundamental the, the things the that go on at grassroots level do happen. But it needs to be mainstreamed as well. It needs to be mainstreamed as well. So uh, um, education, you know, education is lifelong now. Okay. And if we have a historical perspective, we think about people that went to university and then did this and that. That's all very well. But there are lots of people like me who, who came up from the Coldhuse and did things as well. And I'm very grateful for that experience. I'm very grateful for the experience but I always fed it back into the communities I work.
3: Well, I think Margaret and I would very much agree with that because we have always used our education, um, before we left the universities, uh, to work within communities in many ways. That's why we very often did what we did. When I began university, I got a grant that was more than my husband's wage. You know, So the old mature student thing worked for me. We can't, um, we can't just single out different experiences, there's a whole richness of experience here. <coughs> And I think most of us, probably in this room, we're all here because we are concerned with the wider community and what people can offer to it and what they offer back to us again.
2: Yes, I mean, I have my experiences working as director of the Women's Resource Development Agency and being women's officer for Belfast City Council in the, in the early 80s. Very different experiences and working with women in the community then.
0: I tell you, I'm just looking at the, the clock here. Anybody else want to come in before we wrap up? Yeah.
4: You
5: say that represents today in gender, is gender history something that is being written in or
0: is it because that was so much to write women in history that's going to take a long time? Well, it's I, I, I think we
3: don't really do gender history as yet, um, in any kind of really thorough way, we don't look at masculinities and and so forth. Um, women's history, what makes me despair is one of, one of my, um, uh, particularly one of my university colleagues will come up to me and say, oh, hey Myrtle, I read this wonderful piece on so-and-so, do you know about her? And I say, there are so many books and articles written about her, but they're not mainstreamed. And this is our big difficulty now, I think. I think we were right to go women's history because there was so much to be done. And the issue now, uh, and the centennial events have made a huge difference, I think. Because even if it was tokenism, we were invited to all of them, uh, and you know we, we were able to, to get our, our bit in. Mm. And I do think there's you know there is recognition now, but it, it's very slow in coming. But for me, the problem has been mainstreaming women's history. Um, it's happening more, but very slowly. I think one of the um, to me one of the things that I'm looking
2: at at the moment is the military archives and the witness statements and the pension applications of those who were involved in the war of independence. And And you've got a a woman, Cecile Gordon, who's the head of that whole project and who's a feminist. And I think she has driven and and looked and changed the culture. So I went to the launch of the IRA Brigade Activity Reports recently and a lot of historians gave um, presentations on different aspects. They all brought in women at some stage, and in, not in a false way. I think that it is much more mainstreamed now, and the way that the archives are is, you know, that you do have the Cumananang women, and you are seeing them now. They're trying to sort of map them side by side with the men that they worked with, so that you can no longer just have. Um, what's been very interesting that people talk about, you know, the War of Independence started at Soleado when Dan Breen and Shakespeare's Um, And you think a woman was not involved. And now you've got these uh, brigade activity reports, and every single woman who was there, who sheltered the men before they went on the operation, who took the arms away after, etc. this invisible army that nobody kind of knew about. It was Mm -hmm. always boys' own adventures, Mm was how the the history was. It's now much more nuanced Mm -hmm. and much more complicated. And so I think that we're starting to kind of tie it together in that one aspect now that's only one aspect of irish history but mm. as as myrtle says with the centenary of women and the vote for example i think there's been so much more state recognition both north and south there have been lots mm. of lots of events um so i don't think people can ignore it, but one of the best examples or uh, archive sources of the Irish citizen, the suffrage paper, yeah. and very few male historians see that as an important yeah. source. I think once male historians properly use that, I think we will have really mm-hmm. kind of leapt over, and uh, that would be a paradigm shift for me. Yeah,
1: and for anyone who wants to look at it, it's online. it's online, It's, it's in the British yes. newspaper archives, yeah. it's yeah. going on to the Irish newspaper archives soon, yeah. it's a great source. Uh-huh. I'll credit as well to the editors of the recent Atlas of the Irish Revolution, Mm -hmm. University College Cork, they put great emphasis on the role of women uh, in the revolution. And going back, I mean going back in Irish historiography, uh, books like Unmanageable Revolutionaries, Margaret's book, I I think the the, the role of women in the Irish Revolution, there has been good work done, there's an awful lot more work uh, to be done. I see there's a new book on the Irish Citizen Army that's just been published, The Hercules Army, and rightly it talks about the the unique place of women in that organisation, by comparison to the Irish volunteers which they couldn't join. So, yeah, people are looking at the female experience of the, of the revolution more and more. That
0: there, is, there is a darker side to this, though, because uh, tomorrow we're going to have a hedge school down in Cove on the, the War of Independence, but Linda Connolly will be on the panel. Yeah. And uh, I know Linda's going to have a few things to say about you know, violence to women uh, on either mm-hmm. on both sides um, during the War of Independence. And I, I suspect it's an issue, you know, when, it, when, when the history is written of the, the recent troubles here, uh, but I can see we won't have time to go into this, that'll be another head school, but that's another story to be told, uh, mm. is, is the particular problems that women faced uh, during the troubles. You May, do you want to you come in on that? Yeah.
4: No, uh, I don't wish to make f- uh, fun of what we're doing here, I think it's a very serious subject, but I heard a joke recently. <laughs> uh, this guy said, there's one thing about it, you know, equality, women getting into politics, is the right way. He says it has really proved equality works. He says we blame the men for the mess. Look at the mess we're in now with three women leaders.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: so let's not get carried away that if the world was women tomorrow, things would be different. There's always going to be that conflict, but we have got to keep pushing. So. Uh,
0: well, I think I'll, we'll wrap up on that note. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, May Blood, uh, and uh, Margaret, uh, Margaret Ward, here beside me. Uh, Myrtle Hill, and Donald Fallon. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, in particular those people who contributed to the discussion. Yes, and uh, if you want to take a fast car down to Cork, you can come to the next hedge school tomorrow uh, in, Cove in the afternoon. Um, I'm a bit like a show band here. I, I can't play the next town. I have to go to the other end of the country. This has been great. Uh, I will be back here soon, I hope. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the hedge the, the school. Thank you.